Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Today on CityCast Portland, we're talking about the climbing costs of the city's government overhaul, the off-duty Alaska airline pilot who tried to take down a plane over Oregon, and the Washington state senator who passed through PDX security checkpoints with a gun in his carry-on. Joining me on this week's News Roundup are Oregonian City Hall reporter Shane Dixon-Cavanaugh and our very own lead producer, John Atariani. It's Friday, October 27th. I'm Claudia Meza. And this is what Portland's talking about. Welcome back to the News Roundup, everyone. Yeah, thank you. Oh my goodness. It is (laughs) delightful to be back. Thanks for having me again. (laughs) For those of you new to our show, Friday is when we break down some of the biggest stories of the week. But before we get into it, we usually start off with an icebreaker style, like opening question. So this week's question is related to a conversation I had with Willamette Week City Hall reporter Sophie Peel about the candidates that have already filed intent to run for our new city council. Have you guys been keeping track? I think we're up to like 27, 28 candidates. (laughs) It's a lot. So before uh, I met with Sophie, I had gone online to see if any candidate uh, websites had like been made. And in my search, I was really disappointed because uh, I realized that no one seems to be doing campaign slogans for local elections. Like it's always just like so-and-so for PDX. I'm convinced that campaign slogans really do uh, work on people, especially if they rhyme like a all the way with LBJ and like, I like Ike, you know, even grander (laughs) statements like Obama's like the change we need or Reagan's let's make America great again. I mean, like Reagan's slogan was so catchy. It was used again a few decades later. And not only did no one seem to care, it still worked. So all of this leads me to my opening question. If y'all were running for city council for your district, what would your campaign slogan be? Okay, so I've been thinking about this. I'm going to be voting in District 2, which is like north, northeast Portland. And I've been trying to think about like what is uniquely going to appeal to the voters of my district? Like what Mm -hmm. asset do we have that the rest of the city doesn't? And it came to me, you know, the people who live right around the Kennedy School get to go to the soaking pool for free. So Mm -hmm. I'm thinking that we could extend that across the entire Second district, mm-hmm. everybody can get a soaking pool, and that's going to be my platform. Uh, soaking pools for the people is what I'm going to run on. Wow. Wow. I was going to ask why you chose that slogan, but, I mean, that was perfectly explained. Oh, you needed it to rhyme, didn't you? Um, no, no, no. I didn't need no, it to no, rhyme. No, no, It'll be no, – okay, new slogan. <laughs> okay. Soaking pools are super cool. There we go. Vote for John Atariani. <laughs> okay. All right, John. Do you have one, Shane? I I have one if you need a, a little bit more time to think on it. No, you know, I've, I'm struggling a little bit with this one in part because just the idea of running for Portland City Council just... <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's the hump? <laughs> yeah. That was the other thing I was thinking. I was thinking of maybe please don't pick me as a slogan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So kind of being put on the spot here a little bit, 
One could be simply, and this might come across as a little harsh, but also I think there's an argument to be made that it's aspirational, which is an inclusive, which is Shane Dixon Kavanaugh for city council, love it or leave it. <laughs> oh, like Portland or you? Both. Yeah. Oh, maybe gotcha. Maybe mostly Portland. Uh, just, I mean, the idea is we really need people who are deeply committed to this city right now to try to get things back on track a little bit. It's inclusive, although maybe a little exclusive. Do we really need many more people hating on Portland at the moment? I think we can continue to criticize what's not working, but uh, just sort of the ad hominem hatred might be a little less productive, mm. but I don't know. I like yours. Yours it's a little uh, like these colors don't run, but like Portland style, you know, <laughs> we needed uh, we needed some of that like populist, like, you know, this is a miracle, you know, but like in Portland and you know what? I appreciate it. John is going to give out soaking pools. You're threatening people to love Portland. I feel like we're, we're almost there. Um, <laughs> mine would be why so serious? And I would run on a Joker Batman platform where I just made Portlanders realize how much better Portland is than Gotham City. Like, I don't think I'll win again, but I'll, I feel like I might destroy in the debates because everyone would be playing checkers and I would be playing Yahtzee. Like, I would just employ the old crazy like a fox strategy. Um, and if there's any shred of old Portland left, I could possibly claw my way to a seat on District 2. I mean, all you need is 25% clowns like you put it you put a tall bike in there like you've got a constituency see what i'm saying why yeah. so serious i don't think i'd go the whole clown but i might do the like little suit or the disheveled like you know it, mainly i'm just trying to communicate a point here you know mm -hmm. but uh what the point is a little a little you know to be determined yeah to be determined but i i actually shane i also came up with an idea for um a new slogan for the city because the city that works is pretty much a self-burn at this point um ready for it i'm ready all right don't read the comments portland oregon <laughs> <laughs> i love it <laughs> all right thanks guys on to the news of the week shane what story are you sharing with us today well, I am very pleased to be sharing sort of the latest turn of the screw around Portland's attempt to transition to a new form of government and specifically just sort of the continued escalating cost estimates to pull this magnificent feat off. As the City Hall reporter for The Oregonian, I have been following very closely Portland's attempt to transition to this new form of government. And you know, one of the questions that came up during the campaign last year uh, and this ballot measure to change the city's charter and make this transition, there was a lot of discussion around what it was going to cost to actually do this. And at the time, the city budget office at the urging of the Charter Commission that was putting together this proposal, came up with some cost estimates. I think a lot of people at the time had questions about those estimates, whether or not they were even remotely close to being accurate because they seemed particularly low. And in some cases, they had an extremely wide range, such as the ongoing cost for this new form of government could be anywhere between $900,000 a year and $8.7 million a year. So fast forward, uh, what we're talking about this week is actually sort of 
There's uh, a reorganization of sort of high-level administrative functions and operational functions of the city. That was the anywhere from 900,000 to 8.7 million was the estimate. And we found out this week that uh, sort of at a minimum, it's likely going to be about $13 million more a year uh, to put this proposed organizational change into effect. On the one hand, $13 million doesn't sound like a ton of money, and we can also sort of contextualize that both in terms of what the city's general fund budget is or the overall budget is, but I would be also happy to sort of explain why coming up with $13 million uh, is going to be probably a real ugly political knife fight in the coming months. So, Right. Mm-hmm. Well, I feel like after hearing about PBOT's budget shortfall, I no longer trust our city leaders to uh, keep a ledger on funding, just to keeping track of how much money they have. So do you think that the projected cost that you, or that they came up with, it's not like you were up there and were tallying, but that they were just like, oh, we might need this more. Do you think it might just rise a little higher? Maybe it's not going to be $13 million. <laughs> Maybe it's going to be closer to 20 or something. They'll be like, oh, you know what we forgot? You know what the thing we forgot? It's almost like they need a manager. That's so weird. <laughs> well, yeah. <laughs> budget estimates are always going to be an estimate, number one. It's a pretty imperfect science. And there's always going to be things that come up that weren't initially sort of considered. Having said that, with sort of building or rebuilding or reorganizing the bureaucracy, there is opportunities to eliminate duplicative positions, scale other things within the bureaucracy back to sort of offset the costs. However, it does sound like at this time that the current city council that's making these decisions is not going to necessarily make the hard choice to start eliminating duplicative positions or pairing things back. And in fact, there has been an indication that they're probably going to leave this up to the next city council to sort of ultimately sort out. The main Mm -hmm. architect of the city's transition uh, proposal, Michael Jordan, the city's chief administrative officer, has has already sort of told uh, city employees and staff that they're, they are not going to be eliminating jobs or positions throughout the course of the transition. Yeah. It, it does sort of have this feeling of a little bit of like Lucille Bluth, like, well, it's just a government. How much could it cost? You know? <laughs> <laughs> like, like, what is it? What does it cost? $4 million to run a government? I don't Ten know. Bananas, you know. Ten bananas? <laughs> um, Ten bananas? Okay. So the thing that I'm curious about, though, Shane, is city leadership needs to make a decision on where to come up with this $13 million or however much money. And it does seem like a lot of the sort of financial wrangling at this point on city council has been related to the bureau system, right? That like each city commissioner has this sort of pet project in the bureau that they are in charge of. But if with this transfer of government, we're getting away from that as a model, like is that still the case? Or does this create an opportunity where we're not going to have those sort of department versus department interest fights? Long term, John, 
the the transition to this new form of government, which uh, all sort of administrative and bureaucratic functions will be overseen by a professional city administrator or manager, is going to eliminate sort of these siloed bureaus kind of uh, fighting against other bureaus and trying to maintain their own self-interest. However, uh, there's still an open question about what this year's budget process is going to look like. Mm-hmm. Mayor Ted Wheeler has been explicit that he would very much like, and he has the power to do this, to seize all of the bureaus that are currently managed by his uh, city council colleagues. So he would have he, he and his administration would have control over all the bureaus to begin this upcoming budget process. However, he's getting a significant amount of pushback uh, from his colleagues about that. They are having a lot of uh, heartburn and sort of a little <laughs> bit of an existential crisis because it's like, if you take our bureaus, then what exactly are we going to be doing for the next 14 months? The mayor has kind of said that he had wanted to take back the bureaus as early as next week in November. And now he's sort of conceded that he might have to wait a little bit longer to do that. So there's a question about who all is going to be working on the budget and how this particular budget is going to work this year. And that is hugely important for just sort of setting things on the path to going forward. I know we're we're talking about the money we don't have, but I'm my I'm still boggled when I read your article about the money we do have. I did not know that Portland's yearly budget is in the billions, and I was like, where are all these billions coming from? And so I'm just like, but there's seven of them, and like we can't figure it out with like magical unicorn dollars. Like, what's wrong with us? Seven billion dollars, and we're still just like, oops. And the seven billion, I mean, billion is a very big number. I tend to think that this, the, the actual uh, number we need to be looking at is what the city's discretionary general fund is. This is a, all that other money is essentially accounted for, spoken for when the budget is passed and baked. But we get down to about $695 million of discretionary funding, which is this is free to move around and use however we see fit. And so when you're looking at 13 million and looking at that $695 million number, again, tiny fraction, but my goodness, we're going to be heading into what's going to be a real ugly uh, and lean budget year. Mm -hmm. And I have seen these city council members, uh, I mean, go to the mat over Mm $500,000. So when you start talking about $13 million, Again, small amount of money, but it's it's a pretty fraught thirteen million dollars as well. Yeah, I mean, and to me, it's like, look, like we did just vote in a very large expansion of city government, right? Like we decided that we're going to add all of these new positions, that we're going to add all of these news offices, and those are going to need staffs, and those are going to need places to work. And yeah, and it's going to cost money. <laughs> and it's going to cost money, and like to me, it's like I would much rather have those positions be really well funded, you know. And, and that, but that I think is ultimately going to require difficult tough choices by Portland's elected leaders, and they really have not had to do that in this current iteration of the council. So, Does this mean my soaking pool policy is not going to fly? I don't know. <laughs> 
What about all my Batman costumes? I mean, soaking pool, uh, universal soaking pools might be a $13 million program for all I know. Uh, <laughs> we haven't penciled it out yet. All right, well, let's take a quick break here. And when we return, more news of the week. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. We're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Well, John, what do you have for us this week? Yeah, very different uh, type of story from the one we were just discussing. I want to take a look at the wildness that happened uh, in the skies over Portland, uh, thanks to an off-duty pilot who basically tried to take over and crash an Alaska Airlines, well, a Horizon Airlines flight. So this guy, Joseph David Emerson, he'd been a pilot, um, licensed with the FAA, worked for two decades, and he was sitting in the jump seat in the cockpit of a plane and basically lost his mind and decided that he was going to try and take over and cut the fuel to an airplane, essentially just stopping the engines mid-flight and crashing it. Um, he had a tussle with the pilots. Uh, then the pilots called out to the flight attendants that this guy was out of control. He left the cockpit. The flight attendant said that he was perfectly composed and calm once again. Um, but then he decided to go for the emergency exit door and try and get out of what? the airplane that way. And he eventually told the flight attendants, I think you need to handcuff me. So that's what they did. They handcuffed him. They restrained him. And the plane had to make an emergency landing in Portland. All of this was crazy enough when it first broke out, but then, like, the next day, the story came out that apparently this man had been on hallucinogenic mushrooms as well, and that mm -hmm. was what led to this entire ordeal, that he just sort of had a break with reality and thought that he says that he thought that he was in a dream uh, and then realized yeah. that he wasn't in a dream and that it was a very bad situation. But to be fair, didn't he take the mushrooms like exactly. a few days before? 48 hours before. Right. And here's the deal. Yeah. He was up for two days straight. I feel like that might have helped with his break of reality because supposedly he said he was doing these things because he wanted to wake up. Yeah, yeah. Right? So. I mean, I don't know. 48 hours, I'm not like a toxicologist, so I don't know what you know like if if like it broke his mind 48 hours before and then he didn't sleep and then like he was just more disoriented but i just feel like i've known people who've done mushrooms i've done mushrooms 48 hours you're just you're you're no longer on mushrooms <laughs> you know yeah yeah but i mean i do like that that's what everyone seems to be hung up on mm -hmm. i don't know john or claudia if you saw the story that we had published this morning by my colleague Amy green that revealed that he had also piloted a plane three days before this episode on thursday yeah yeah he was mm -hmm. a pilot on thursday and he was a Ooh. plane crasher on sunday yeah yeah that's scary <laughs> yeah well there the other kind of wild thing is that there's just been so many airplane news stories coming out of portland or oregon we had this 
piece last week about how an Alaskan airline flight almost collided with -hmm. another plane that was taking off. And that's under investigation that happened at PDX just a week ago. And, you know, there was that tragic plane crash of the flight school uh, students out near Hillsborough that occurred earlier this month as well. And mm-hmm. I was actually Man. covering the memorial service for, for one of the kids that died in that crash. Just a lot of crazy stuff going on with planes right now. Yeah. I mean, so the thing that's interesting to me about this guy, though, is like, okay, like clearly there is some sort of a psychological break happening here. But looking at what happened here with the sort of decriminalization and growth of this therapeutic psilocybin program in Oregon, like it does show that like these things have amazing therapeutic effects, but they need to be taken really seriously. You know, that psychedelic mushrooms can occasionally cause a sort of psychological break in people that already have underlying Mm -hmm. conditions, right? Underlying, there's the word, underlying conditions. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Yeah. But I mean, but, you know, these sorts of things, they can sort of bring those circumstances up to the surface. And and the thing that I also thought was interesting, he said that he'd been suffering from depression for six months. But apparently there are laws that uh, as a pilot, Emerson was prohibited from taking a number of medications, including most antidepressants. You know, so there are these laws that forbid pilots from taking some of these substances that are designed to help them, which can lead to a situation where, like, yes, somebody is self-medicating, whether it's with a psychedelic mushroom or with alcohol or something else. Like, these laws that are designed ostensibly to protect people, like, can, in some circumstances, lead to, like, much worse outcomes. And I think that that's something to consider. You've heard about that, Shane? Because that was something that has been popping up. I mean, this was, to to me, the biggest example of why perhaps we should start caring more about pilots, um, you know, mental health. But it's been this this whole thing that John just said has been like an expose for years. Like, hey, mm-hmm. did you know that your pilot might be depressed and he can't do anything about it? Because if he were to say, hey, I'm depressed, they're going to pull him. And so a lot of people would rather lie and say they're, they're not having mental health issues because they want to keep their job. Or they have to pay out of pocket for this treatment that may be inconsistent because they're traveling all the time. Mm-hmm. And exactly. I'm just like, oh, my God. Like In a job that is inherently stressful, mm-hmm. that is inherently sort of destabilizing and disorienting. Yeah. That seems like the bigger issue there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I was just going to say, I recall it might have been, it was a while ago now, 2015, maybe 2016, when there was that uh, pilot in Europe, I think for a German airliner who had been dealing with mental health issues was depressed and he just downed the plane with hundreds of people on it. I mean, this very nearly could have been that same situation. You know, he faces Mm -hmm. 83 counts of attempted murder right now. And if it wasn't for the pilots of this plane and they're sort of quickly pushing him off from what he was attempting to do, like, yeah, could have been the same situation here. Yeah, maybe maybe a public service announcement for people who are looking to wake up. I don't know, yoga, meditation. <laughs> Pinch yourself. He couldn't have pinched himself. Yeah. I also just don't understand the like, I feel depressed. I feel disoriented. Let's take this entire plane down. Mm-hmm. I do feel like you should be talking to a, a professional. And it's too bad that our pilots cannot, you know. Mm-hmm. I, hopefully this maybe shakes something up because, like, this seems like a, a more systemic issue. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this leads uh, to my headline, which is that uh, Washington State Senator Jeff Wilson was arrested in Hong Kong for having a gun uh, in his carry-on bag, a gun that supposedly went undetected 
through PDX. <laughs> Have you guys been following this story? Because yeah. the yes. updates are very interesting. Oh, yes. It's a wild one for sure. Yeah. <laughs> if you haven't heard of the story, Senator Wilson is a Republican state senator for Longview, Washington. He's also a port of Longview commissioner. He's been in the state Senate since 2021, and he was on his way to a five-week-long vacation with his wife, which honestly shocked me more than the gun. Because I was like, five weeks? <laughs> I want to be a senator? Jeez Louise. But anyhow, his official statement was that it was a quote-unquote honest mistake. The account on his website and what was reported on pretty much all of U.S. like U.S. outlets is that mid-flight from San Francisco to Hong Kong, mm -hmm. he searched in his bag for gum mid-flight. <laughs> and as he was rummaging, found the unloaded gun. And he then says that as soon as he landed honk to Hong Kong, he turned the gun and himself into customs and was just like, oops. It's it's all it's all about just those little details. It's the oh I'm rummaging around for gum and oh my god there's a there's my there's, there's my gun. gun. <laughs> I know, but the standard of paper in Hong Kong initially reported that the gun was in fact discovered by custom agents at the Hong Kong airport, and also that the senator had been verbally abusive to reporters when they gathered to get a statement. Uh, he denied all of these accusations, and the standard in their most recent updates seemed to be aligning with like the senator's official statement. Statement, uh, that it was he who discovered and turned it himself. So like, who knows what the truth is? But as of Monday, he had appeared in court and is now out on bail. The story caught my eye because he kind of threw PDX under the bus there. So do you guys think that maybe PDX might be too lax on their security checks? Like maybe they were just like, oh, you're a senator, go on. Or have you ever had any issues at PDX? I have the best TSA at PDX story of all time. Oh, have I told you this? No, no, do tell. Several years ago, my sister and I both live in Portland. Uh, our parents live in Michigan. We were going back for Christmas. And it was one of those like holiday scramble, like try and get through the airport line. And her suitcase was a little bit too heavy. And I was like, hey, I've got some room in my carry-on. You can just throw some stuff in there. It'll be cool. So she gives me some like wrapped gifts. I go through security and they like pull my bag for a screening. And the guy pulls out a package and is like, "What? what what's in this package? And I turn to my sister. I'm like, I don't know. What what is in that wrapped package that you put in my carry-on suitcase? And she goes, oh, that's a butcher's knife. <laughs> <laughs> and it was. It was like an eight-inch butcher's knife. In your carry-on. That she had me put in my carry-on. <laughs> <laughs> like in the scramble at the airport. So they found that. They caught that. So I have experienced like very lax PDX TSA. I've accidentally brought on a pocket knife on a carry-on and I didn't discover it till I landed. And to be honest, I do think most of TSA is theater. I think it's theater. I think it's safety theater. Yeah. A bottle of wine that's corked that I'm not gonna open up. Like just certain things where I'm like, we can all calm down. You know, yeah. a gun, yes, of course, someone should be there, you know, checking for guns and knives, you know? But yeah. like, I don't care if someone brings in a jar of like homemade whatever, you know, like <laughs> I don't care, you know? Well, I actually started looking into this of like how often do guns show up in airport security? Uh, last year, the TSA de detected 6,542 firearms at airport security checkpoints across the country, which, which, which to me is like, OK, like you have a suitcase, you have a carry on suitcase. Like what what circumstance would you ever be in where you would put? a gun in a carry-on suitcase to begin with. Like, yeah, that's a hard oopsie daisy. 
Well, here's the deal with th that figure you just said. Uh, to me, yes, 6,542 6, firearms were found, but 88% were loaded. Like, what the hell? That's so scary. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like those guns were ready to go. And it, again, you can't have like so many oopsie daisies. Like, how do you, how do you accidentally pack an, a gun in your luggage? I have to say that I think that it's entire, entirely plausible that this was an honest mistake. Okay. I, I, I mean, there are many, many, many gun owners in the U.S. I don't happen to be one of them, but I did grow up around firearms, family members who were avid firearms enthusiasts. And so I think it's important to sort of point out that for people who do own guns, and if you, especially if you have a concealed carry permit like the senator did, I mean, if you're constantly accustomed to having a, a firearm on you legally, it's not entirely Im impossible for me to imagine that you've placed it someplace and it appears that it wasn't loaded. So it wasn't part of the 88% of guns discovered that were loaded at an airport, but still. Oh my God. Well, so far TSA officers have found uh, 43 guns at PDX uh, at the checkpoints this year. Last year they found 78. So uh, again, I ask the question, what do you think about PDX TSA? Do you think maybe we're a little too lax? I haven't really had an issue with uh, whether accidentally or on purpose bringing weapons or drugs on a flight. So I just haven't really it's a, it's a real thrill. wound up in a situation like that. But I keep thinking about this more in, uh, along the lines of there's the legitimate question about TSA oversight, but there's also just the component of this being a cautionary tale for mm -hmm. your gun owner. And I keep thinking about cannabis or marijuana since it's legal here. Mm -hmm. It's like, uh, and there are people who might bring that with them on a flight, uh, which isn't a terrible thing to do, unless you end up going to a country where there are strict weapons or drug laws. And all of a sudden you're going to end up like that guy in the movie Midnight Express at a Turkish prison for years or something like that. Oh my God, seriously. Yeah, I mean, and, and I, I was looking at it, you know, he had, you know, the sort of like legal registration in the U.S. for the gun, but it wasn't registered in Hong Kong, of course. Um, and under Hong Kong law, like carrying a firearm without a license is punishable by up to 14 years in jail. Um, like. I don't think that Senator Wilson is going to spend 14 years in a Hong Kong jail, but like he could legally, mm -hmm. you know, he could if someone decided to turn this into an international incident. Like that's totally possible. Imagine what would have happened if he wasn't looking for that piece of gum. I know, right? <laughs> just imagine that still to I'm still just like, OK, all right. So Wilson is facing his next court hearing in Hong Kong on October 30th in a few days. Mm -hmm. and, and the U.S., I'm just curious if when he comes back, if the U.S. is going to bring down any kind of TSA consequences, like because he can get fined up to like $15,000 for what he did. And also, this is like my favorite one, a five-year ban from TSA pre-check lines, which is like you have to take your shoes off now. Oh, I disagree. Pre-check pre is very nice. Oh, no, I have pre-check, but I'm just saying, I just think you maybe should, it should be a little more. A little steeper, yeah. <laughs> just a little steeper. I just keep thinking about Senator Wilson's wife. I hope they're able to have a nice vacation still. This is off to a pretty <laughs> oh, rocky start. God. Seriously, right? 
Yeah. My favorite thing that happened this week was, I don't remember who I was talking to, but somebody who got the two stories conflated and was like, did you hear about the senator who was on mushrooms and took a gun to China? <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. <laughs> oh, my God. That's our other podcast. <laughs> it's called Remix. <laughs> Remix. Well, guys, thanks so much for hanging out this morning and going through the news of the week. Shane, it was a pleasure to host you. It was a pleasure to be here. Thanks again. And John, as always, thank you. Yeah, it's been great. Thanks. That's all for today here on CityCast Portland. Thanks so much for listening. If you enjoyed the show, please rate or leave us a great review, an amazing review. It will really help us out. Our lead producer is John Atariani. Our audio producers this week were Lizzie Goldsmith and Julia Fiaioni. Our newsletter editor is Rachel Monahan, And our host is me, Claudia Meza. Original music by Jenny Conley and Steven Drizos. Additional music by Epidemic Sound and All the Kimonos. We'll be back Monday morning with more from around the city. Until then, see you at Slim's.